You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. Today I'm interviewing clinical professor Peter Silbert, who trained in neurology at WA and at the Mayo Clinic. He's been head of the Department of Neurology at Royal Perth and director of state neurology and head of neurology services for WA. He's a clinical professor of neurology at UWA and is perhaps best known as the most popular and highest rating guest on The Good GP. In addition to his academic work, his private practice is confined to neurophysiology and botulinum toxin therapy. Today, we're doing our second part of peripheral neuropathies, focusing on management. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Sean. Thanks again for the invitation. So, Peter, peripheral neuropathies are a very heterogeneous group of conditions. Can you please give us a framework of how you manage them? I'm going to talk about this a lot from the general practice point of view because whether neuropathies are under specialist management, which is really a minority, or under general practice management, which should be by far the majority, the principles are the same. I think a lot of what happens even in the specialty management group does need to be picked up back by the GPs. So, you know, the most important part, I think, of general practice management, speaking as a non-GP, is actually the education and following the patient through the journey of their illness. When I see patients, or when I was seeing a lot of new patients with general referred, the biggest concern patients with peripheral neuropathy have would they'd become paralysed and they wouldn't be able to walk and what was going to happen for the future. And that is an incredibly small minority of patients with peripheral neuropathy and really not relevant for almost everyone. So I think, you know, at the level of general practice, what I really think is so important is translating the specialist care or running the show and following the patient through their journey about the peripheral neuropathy, what it means, we've got a plan in place, we can manage this, the symptoms are all quite manageable, and that reassurance that general practitioners do so well. There are the basic things that we talk about. I mean, safety is one of them. And you'll remember back from medical school, you know, be careful of hot water because your feet can't feel it. Be careful of your choice of footwear. Don't wear ill-fitting shoes. Look after your toenails. Sometimes that involves referral to a podiatrist if they can't cut their own toenails so that they don't get nicking the skin and getting infections. Mobility is a huge issue. Patients with neuropathy can be, but not always, a falls risk. And that's picking up the falls risk management protocol, looking at the home environment, the bone density. I'm a great believer in weight management, that if patients have a neuropathy, the thing that is going to make their balance more compromised, take them off their feet a little bit, make them unsafe, is if they're very overweight, together with the fact that will be one of the second hit risk factors if they're going to get blood sugar level problems, Maintaining their walking stability, making sure that they stay active. Sometimes patients with peripheral neuropathy stop being so active because they don't feel right on their feet. They get weakness in their hip girdle. They're therefore more likely to fall. Some patients with neuropathy will need an ACROD parking permit. That's very reasonable. If they've got a very significant neuropathy, we may need to think about their driving safety. So they may need a driving OT assessment. If they've got weakness, In terms of ankle dorsiflexion, they may need an AFO. All of these are safety and mobility issues. I mentioned about uh, their weight and avoiding second hits, and I mentioned that in the previous podcast as well. If patients have a neuropathy, even if it's idiopathic, 
we don't want to expose them to other factors. So it's better if they don't become diabetic. It's better if they keep their alcohol consumption to a reasonable level. And just avoid an idiopathic neuropathy being aggravated by developing diabetes and excessive alcohol consumption. Specialty management is important for some of these patients, but a lot of the drugs we use in specialty management for neuropathy have side effects. So if we're going to put them on steroids, that has the risk of making them osteopenic and weight gain. If they're going to be immunocompromised, we need to be thinking about flu vaccination. If they're less mobile, that again brings up the question of bone density, falls risk, and all those factors I mentioned above. Pain management's obviously a big issue as well, but not all patients need pain management. Sometimes it's just explaining that the altered feeling is just the mismessage from the nerve and that we don't need to be treating that. It's just to know that it's not going to cause any harm. If they are an anxious person, if they're depressed, uh, those patients will benefit from treating that side, whether it's some psychological therapy or whether it's actually pharmacologically treating their anxiety and depression. The group that often does need treatment are those who have painful peripheral neuropathies. A lot of those have small fibre involvement. Sometimes it's large fibre with an unpleasant dysesthesia, but often it's the burning neuropathic pain of the small fibre involvement that needs some pharmacological input. And I tend to think of these drugs in three groups. We think about the gabapentoids, that's pregabalin and gabapentin, the precursor the drug that came before pregabalin. We think about the tricyclics. Classically, it's amitriptyline. And we think about SSRIs and SNRIs. Uh, Looking at the first group, the evidence for these drugs is not robust. I mean, pregabalin or even gabapentin are particularly good if they have a lot of night pain and you want to get them to sleep. Pregabalin in particular, more so than gabapentin, tends to cause a bit more sedation in my experience and certainly causes more weight gain than gabapentin. So often, if I'm going to use a gabapentinoid, just use it at night. Perhaps a little bit of gabapentin during the day, so they might end up on 100 milligrams TDS and then go to 100 BID with 300 milligrams Noctay. Some patients do tolerate pregabalin very well as a BID dosage. Tricyclics, amitriptyline has been the mainstay for many, many years, but a lot of these patients that we're dealing with with peripheral neuropathy are an age group where they will not do well with tricyclics, particularly men, uh, dry eyes, dry mouth, constipation, prostatism. And there has been a big move away in my practice, my existing patients from tricyclics. There was a really important study that came out in JAMA in 2019 that I'm sure most of you are aware of, which was the impact of long-term use of anticholinergic-based drugs. Now, some of those drugs were tricyclics, classically amitriptyline. Some of those drugs were medications used for bladder instability. And if you used one of those drugs for three years at the minimum effective dose for open quotation marks, older people, close quotation marks, was what they said in the study, then you actually had a 50% increased odds ratio. It doesn't mean you had a 50% chance of getting dementia, but you did increase your risk of developing dementia. And it's not really surprising when we think about it. I mean, the drugs we use to treat memory dysfunction in Alzheimer's disease are the opposite of anticholinergics. It doesn't mean that I never use those drugs, particularly in my chronic migraine patients, but it does mean that if there are other alternatives, I tend to use them. And really the side effects of anticholinergics are significant. 
The third group was using SSRIs or SNRIs and duloxetine was really the one that led the studies on this showing that duloxetine was very good for patients with painful peripheral neuropathy and diabetics, even if they were not depressed. And patients tend to say they can feel the discomfort, but it bothers them less. I don't think it's a drug-specific effect. I, I don't even think it's particularly class-specific restricted to SNRIs. Uh, low doses of SSRIs do seem to work equally well. Just I, I often prescribe it off-label. Often these patients have some anxiety and it may be advantageous to prescribe it on-label for some patients financially. Whether we use an SNRI, which tends to have more side effects, in particular sweating and a bit more fuzziness in the head at times, or whether we go for an SSRI will just be a decision you'll make as you normally do talking to the patients. There are some other drugs we can use. We can use topical therapies. I don't personally tend to use a lot of capsation. Mm. I mean, that works by deleting substance P, but bit of pain before it works. It's got to be an ongoing therapy. Similarly, topical lignocaine patches, they do work out to be quite expensive and, mm. and it's a large area you're treating and that makes topical therapies, whether it's topical lignocaine patches or compounded combinations of ketamine, ketoprofen and bupivacaine, more difficult to use on an ongoing basis. I do sometimes resort to the compounded creams I just mentioned if patients are going through a particularly difficult stage at night or there's some particular reason we need to gain control in the short to medium term. And I guess the final step in pain management might be seeing a pain specialist. I mean, there are some very high level interventions, lignocaine, ketamine infusions. Those interventions help, but that really is a minority of patients. Mm. And we need to remember that having neuropathic burning pain in the feet will sensitise patients and it becomes a chronic pain situation and early intervention and treatment is advantageous. Mm. Okay, thank you. Yeah, because that's certainly something we see a lot of in general practice and it's good to have some other tools in our toolkit to manage that. So when should GPs think about referring a patient with a case of peripheral neuropathy to a neurologist? This really comes down to, as general practitioners always do, their clinical judgment. The great majority of cases are very appropriately managed in general practice and often, given the long relationship GPs have with their patients, in some ways even better managed. And if they are in specialist care, I wouldn't put aside the fact that GPs do need to continue to be involved. I think younger patients, you know, if you've got a younger patient, developing peripheral neuropathies is an age-dependent issue. It's more common as we get older, as we talked about in the first podcast. Now, some of that's because some of the diseases that may be associated or cause a peripheral neuropathy, namely diabetes, it takes time to get enough alcohol consumption down your sleeve, chemotherapy, drugs, all of those things tend to be more common with age. But if you see a neuropathy in a younger patient, particularly electrophysiologically confirmed, then Unless there's a very simple cause like excessive vitamin B6 or B12 deficiency, those patients really should be fully evaluated if you cannot identify the cause. If it's a rapid onset, the classical diagnosis here is AIDP or Guillain-Barre syndrome. Those patients can progress to a very significant degree and benefit from early treatment with intravenous immunoglobulins. If they've got significant motor weakness, the morbidity of the disease, the peripheral neuropathy is significant. And whilst you can arrange for AFOs... Sorry, can you just elaborate? AFOs? Ankle foot orthoses. Oh, so thank splints or AFOs, something just to stop the foot falling into plantar flexion when they walk, which makes them more likely to trip. Yep. 
If they've got significant motor weakness, then this is a very significant neuropathy and you really want to be very proactive. And there is a group of neuropathies that inflammatory disorders that are treated with intravenous immunoglobulin, immunosuppressive therapies and early more aggressive therapy is important. The essential part of the GP management is picking those cases and getting them seen, let alone the difficulties in negotiating neurological referral and getting patients seen in a timely fashion. And I appreciate that can be really difficult. I think patients with proprioceptive impairment are a group where there is a cause for that neuropathy. So they're the patients where you test joint position sense and you find that instead of being present to small movements at the IP joint of the big toe, it's impaired at the MTP joint or they can only really pick movements properly at the ankle. Those patients have a significant neuropathy, often with dorsal root ganglia involvement. And many of those will have one of the commonest causes actually associated with Schrogan syndrome or it can be paraneoplastic. And you would pick that with your ANA, ENA, and for the paraneoplastic, you may get a clue from anti-neuronal antibodies, or sometimes you've done a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and seen a lesion. But those patients with dorsal root ganglion involvement and proprioceptive impairment do need to be seen because that needs to be aggressively managed because that is often irreversible. And ultimately, it all comes down to clinical judgment and that gut feeling you have remembering that a lot of patients who present with peripheral neuropathy, the peripheral neuropathy is a symptom of another condition and it may be the other condition that needs to be treated. Mm. No, I think that's really good advice. So focusing on what is causing this and screening out what are the red flags, what do you need to look for? And you know, you're right, that is exactly what GPs do and, and do well. So, yes. Yeah, good advice. What are the biggest pitfalls that you would see GPs falling into and how could they be avoided? I think pitfalls is a, a, almost an awkward word. One of the benefits of being a specialist, and I say this not seeing new patients anymore, is that by the time, and I say this tongue in cheek because it's actually terrible when you hear it said, is that by the time they get to see the specialist, there's been a few, in a few more weeks, sometimes months, sometimes in the public system years, for the condition to evolve and the diagnosis becomes easy. So, you know, I think sometimes, by the, even by the time the patient's got to me for an EMG, that evolution over a week has made the diagnosis very clear on history. Peter, I love your insight. We see that in general practice, and that's what I try and tell my non-GP specialist friends, and they uh, poo-poo it. So the fact that you've recognised that and elucidated it so well speaks volumes. It's a sign of my age. <laughs> but, you know, I think that is it. You know, the patients can present with a bit of uh, numbness in the feet, and by the time they get to the specialist review or the EMG, that numbness in the feet has progressed and it's crept up to the mid-chin, but more importantly, it's crept up the posterior calf, posterior thigh, now involves the buttocks and perineum. So that pattern of involvement is almost always at the level of the lower thoracic cord, occasionally the cord or equina, but we've got clues that it's a more proximal pathology and they need thoracolumbar imaging. The other one that I think is a really important condition that often takes time to diagnosis is numb, clumsy hands of mid-cervical cord compression. And you often see these patients who have their carpal tunnels decompressed, often without EMG prior, and they're older patients who their numb, clumsy, burning hands, and if you examine in detail, often have proprioceptive impairment, are due to compression of the mid-cervical cord and central cord ischemia. 
And the clues to that diagnosis are the quality of the sensory disturbance, the proprioceptive impairment, that the fifth digit is also involved, so it's not just a carpal tunnel median nerve distribution. The upper limb reflex is brisk, whereas if someone had a peripheral neuropathy at least, because they've got numb hands and feet, you'd expect the reflexes to be reduced. But it is all really, these conditions are all a matter of keeping an open mind and time. I think it's not really a pitfall of diagnosed peripheral neuropathy, but if I think of my electrophysiological practice, and again, I see a biased group, I don't see a fully representative group, it's really the patients who've gone on to have a tarsal tunnel decompression or been referred for tarsal tunnel. Dynamic tarsal tunnel when you've got a new pair of runners is actually not that uncommon. We've all been through that, but the persisting numb burning soles of the feet is much, much more likely, particularly if it's bilateral, to be an early presentation of a sensory peripheral neuropathy rather than compressive tarsal tunnel syndrome. Excellent. Thank you. Look, I think it's really good to just have those things in mind because you will see that once a week. We will see that once a year, once a decade. So it's nice to have those things at the back of our mind. Listen, Peter, it's been absolutely fascinating talking. I really appreciate it. So thank you again, and I look forward to speaking hopefully later in the year. My thank pleasure. You. Happy to join you again.